The word of God from Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king... As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself, and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Isaiah. I'm one of uh, the pastors here. If you do not have a copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you to take uh, the Bible out from underneath the seat in front of you and turn to page 787 where you can find the story that Denise just read for us from the book of Daniel. But as we begin this morning, we're going to talk about junk food, at least for a few minutes. And I know there's a danger in doing that this late in the morning on a Sunday, but just stick with me for a moment. So with junk food, everything has a shelf life, right? It will last for only so long. One of America's most recognizable indulgent snacks, otherwise known as junk food, has to be the Twinkie. How many of you remember eating Twinkies as kids? How many of you have never eaten a Twinkie in your life? I thought we'd have some hands on that one as well. So the company that makes the Twinkies, Hostess, has actually declared bankruptcy twice, and they've survived. They can and these Twinkies can survive on your shelf or in your pantry a remarkable length of time. But contrary to popular belief, they are not indestructible, and they will not outlast a zombie apocalypse or anything else. So let's do a little poll here, shall we? How many of you, I'm going to give you the, the day of 50, 50 days. How many of you believe that Twinkies, the shelf life, is under 50 days and o or over 50 days? So I'm going to ask you, that's the poll question, okay? How many of you believe the Twinkies shelf life is under 50 days? Raise your hand. How many of you believe the Twinkies shelf life is over 50 days? Raise your hand. Okay, over has it by a lot. I'm not going to tell you right now. After Hostess was bought following their second bankruptcy... The purchasing company knew they had to do something to save the brand and the Twinkie. The Twinkie at that time, the shelf life, was 26 days. Long, but not long enough for their shipping model. 
So they went to work trying to lengthen it. Shelf life matters. Almost everything has a shelf life. From Twinkies, to your brand new car, to the person in power, to nations. They all have a shelf life. Daniel 5 is the story from the very end of the shelf life of the kingdom of Assyria, the Babylonian Empire. So the title of this morning's message is Belshazzar Untied and Babylon Overthrown. So let's move our way through the text this morning by using these points as our guideposts, okay? First, the king's feast. Second, the story's figure. Third, uh, Belshazzar's folly. Fourth, Babylon's fall. And finally, our foundation. All right, here we go. First, the king's feast. So chapter 5 opens abruptly from our perspective. But it actually continues the story from chapter 4. If we ignore the chapter break, which was added later, we read this, going from chapter 4 to chapter 5. The king of the heavens is able to humble those who walk in pride. King Belshazzar held a great feast. But who is this dude? Let's not confuse him with Belteshazzar, Daniel's Assyrian name. The author is drawing our attention to something about Belshazzar, the king. He's a proud man, an arrogant man. And so this party is not a harmless holiday celebration, and we aren't intended to read it that way. The author is shaping our expectation. A proud and powerful dude is holding a party. You know, what's really fun about this particular text is that we can pinpoint the night of the party on the calendar. We know exactly when this party took place. While the date and the time isn't recorded in our text, the major events of the text are recorded in world history. So it's October 11th, 539 BC. 2,562 years ago this month, this party was held. And while the text carries us smoothly from chapter 4 to chapter 5, there are actually 30 years spanning the white space between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. 30 years. Now I'm about to make some enemies with this question, and I realize that, and I embrace it. How many of you are under 30 years old? Raise your hand. Mark, I don't believe it. (laughs) Well... For most of you, if you just raised your hand, uh, more years have passed between these two chapters than you've been alive. And some of you realize I just outed you if you're older than 30 years, but that's okay, I outed myself as well. Eugene Peterson has described discipleship as a long obedience in the right direction. For 30 years... Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been living in Babylon, worshiping the one true God, but loving their neighbors, blessing Babylon with their gifts and their talents. A long obedience 
in the right direction. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar died 23 years ago. His son, son son-in-law, and grandson all became king in very quick succession after him. It seems like the head of gold from the statue, the dream statue in chapter 2, is beginning to lose some of its luster. At some point, a high-ranking, scheming politician in the kingdom deceived and murdered his way to the throne. And his name was Nabonidus. Many scholars believe he was married to a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nabonidus and the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar had a son, and they named him Belshazzar. So Nabonidus put his son and co-regent Belshazzar in control of Babylon while he moved to Arabia for 17 years. This was standard ancient Near Eastern king activity. So for 10 consecutive years of those 17, Nabonidus never visited Babylon, and Belshazzar ruled. Meanwhile, in another part of the world, a certain king is gathering strength, combining empires. The Median Empire and the Persian Empire, centered in modern-day Iran. The king of those empires is named Cyrus, the same Cyrus mentioned at the end of chapter 1. So King Cyrus marches on Nabonidus in Arabia and destroys him. Nabonidus, the king of Babylon, flees for his life, and now the Persian army is literally right outside the gates of Babylon, laying siege to the city. And Belshazzar, left in charge, what does he do? Well, of course, he throws a party. What else are you going to do when your city is under siege? Your kingdom is on the brink of destruction and you have a drinking party. A thousand nobles getting roaring drunk. Eat, drink, and be merry, right? Tomorrow, we die. But maybe there's something more going on here than mere fatalism. After all, Daniel has introduced Belshazzar to us in this story on the heels of those who walk in pride, the Lord will humble. We'll explore that in just a moment. So first, the king's feet. Second, the story's figure. The story's figure. Now, in order to be caught up in the wonder and, frankly, the hilarity of this story, as Daniel intends for us, we need to pause to talk about a type of figure of speech. And don't let your eyes glaze over. I promise it will be worth it. Throughout these first chapters, Daniel has been using a figure of speech where he will name a part of something to represent the whole of something or vice versa. The fancy $18 word for that, remember inflation has hit the word market still, the $18 word for that figure of speech is synecdoche. Go ahead. I know you want to say it. Go ahead and say it. Say it out loud. Synecdoche. It's a fun word to say. Part for the whole or whole for the part. I've actually already used synecdoche in this sermon this morning. When I said Cyrus 
destroyed Nabonidus, that synecdoche. Cyrus did not actually destroy Nabonidus. Cyrus's army defeated Nabonidus' army. Nabonidus actually survived. Part for the whole. The whole of which Cyrus, is, Cyrus was a part, the Medo-Persian army, conquered the whole of which Nabonidus was a part, the Syrian army. And you and I use this figure of speech all the time. In fact, it would not be outside the, the realm of imagination that someone walked into the space here this morning and was talking with someone else and said, Milton beat South Carolina in the football game last night. Now, did Vincent Milton, the quarterback of UT, all by himself, defeat South Carolina? No. But he's a part representing the whole of the University of Tennessee football team. We saw Synecdoche back in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Daniel tells us that the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah to Nebuchadnezzar, as well as the vessels of the temple, and he takes them back to Babylon. So was it just King Je uh, Jehoiakim that God handed into Nebuchadnezzar's hands? No. It was the entirety of the nation of Judah. But who is the representative? Who's the part representing the whole? Well, it's the king. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the kingdom. Representation. Part for the whole. Synecdoche. In Daniel chapter 2, we saw a metal statue representing both a king, or the parts of the statue representing both a king and a kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar is said to be the head of gold, but a ruler over wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, 238. And then each successive medal is said to represent various kingdoms, but then Daniel interprets, in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Again, part for the whole, king for the kingdom, and vice versa. So, Back here in Daniel 5, Belshazzar is both a real king as well as a part for the whole. Think of it this way. He's a non-fiction figure of speech. He's a real historical character representing the character of the kingdom he rules. The kingdom of Babylon. So let's keep building, shall we? The king's feast. The story's figure, and third, Belshazzar's folly. So, this nonfiction figure of a king's figure of a speech king, figure of a king's speech, figure of a speech king puts on a lavish feast for a thousand of his nobles as destruction literally knocks on the gates outside. Why? Well, it's because of his pride. From this point on in biblical history, Babylon becomes a figure, a representation, a pattern of humanity's self-sufficiency and self-confidence. Babylon and her idols become a pattern of mankind's tendency to count on our own ability to secure our destiny apart from God. And this pattern carries all the way through to the book of Revelation, chapters 14 through 18. And that pattern begins to emerge right here 
in this text. And so Belshazzar, in a brilliant move, decides that this drinking party needs finer vessels to drink out of. So he sends to the temple where Nebuchadnezzar had put the very vessels that had been used for the worship of the one true God, Yahweh, he sends for those vessels, those bowls, and he brings them to the palace, and they fill them with alcohol on this October eve, and they get roaring drunk. Throughout the Bible, drunkenness is used as a figure of speech for divine judgment. Listen to what a contemporary of Daniel will say. Jeremiah chapter 51. Babylon will become a heap of rubble. While they are flushed with heat, I will serve them a feast, and I will make them drunk so that they celebrate. Then they will fall asleep forever and never wake up. This is the Lord's declaration. Intoxication is a figure of speech for judgment. And it makes sense, right? Because physical intoxication makes one more open to temptation, makes one fearless of real and present danger, and in the ancient Near East was given to those who were to be executed. It was given to them to numb them for what was about to take place. So it's an apt description in the Bible for those about to face the judgment of God. So now look at our text, beginning in verse 2. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles and wives and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they're praising metal, wood, and stone gods. Daniel intends for you to smile at that. There is a silliness in this text that we need to see. They are worshiping made gods while flaunting the one true living God. Now remember back in the story of the fiery furnace. Daniel, in the telling of that story, gives an extended list of all of the types of officials that were present at that ceremony. He gives that list two times. And you trip over yourself if you're reading the text out loud. And then four times, he lists the number of instruments that were present. Four different times. It's not enough to list them once and reference them as instruments later. He just keeps listing them over and over again. And if you read the book out loud, you can't help but begin to chuckle at what one author calls iterations of enumerations. I just think that's a great phrase. Iterations of enumeration, enumeration. Let me give you a parallel. How many of you have heard the story of Tiki Tiki Tembo? Anyone? One, three, four, four, five, six. Okay, all right. 
Tiki Tiki Tembo. Let me tell you about Tiki Tiki Tembo. Tiki Tiki Tembo is a children's story, and it's hilarious, even though the events are frightening. You see, Tiki Tiki Tembo falls into a well, and his younger brother Pip runs to tell everyone in the village that Tiki Tiki Tembo has fallen into the well. The only problem is that's not his full name. Tiki Tiki Tembo's full name is Tiki Tiki Tembo Nosa Rembo Charibaruchi Pit Peri Pembo. So as Pip tries to tell everybody that Tiki Tiki Tembo Nosa Rembo Charibaruchi Pit Peri Pembo has fallen into the well, by the end of the story, poor Pip is out of breath and can't even get the words out. And it's hilarious. The repetition just becomes silly. It makes you laugh. That's what Daniel was doing in chapter 3. He was showing the silliness of idolatry, worshiping the statue, and he shows the silliness of it by his use of unnecessary repetition. Daniel's a brilliant author. Now here, he's doing something similar. Notice that the gods of Babylon aren't even dignified with names. The gods are labeled by what they are made out of. And do you hear the irony in the sentence I just said? They are made gods. Made gods. So picture this scene because Daniel is ridiculing the ridiculous. He intends for us to chuckle. 1,000 nobles... Plus the kings and the wives and the or the king's wives and concubines led by Belshazzar, all roaring drunk, drinking alcohol from bowls intended for the worship of the one true and living God, praising their gods that they've made by their own hands. Gods with unhearing ears, mouths unspeaking, eyes unseeing, mouths unbreathing. It's intended to be comical. And now we're just waiting for what happens next. So they're praising their metal head and stone deaf gods. And what happens? A hand appears. And it's not a figment of their drunken imagination. A hand appears and writes on the wall in the lamplight, fully visible to everybody. But even though the events that are recorded are actually terrifying. How Daniel is telling this story gets even funnier. Okay, and I'm going to do my best to communicate this delicately. But there's a double entendre here, repeated. And it's intended to make you laugh. Now, you heard a little bit of it in verse 6, as Denise read for us. Belshazzar's face turned pale. His thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself. Literally, the text says, the knots of his loins were loosened. He lost sphincter control. And so the CSB delicately translates, he soiled himself. One author quips, he who sought power over Yahweh's bowls could not control his own bowels. So the suddenly 
incompetent king, or rather incontinent king, looks for someone to remove the terrifying insecurity he's now experiencing at this terrifying hand and handwriting. And so all of the king's enchanters and Chaldeans and astrologers and all the king's wise men, well, bless them, they just couldn't put Belshazzar back together again. So the queen mother, who, remember, most likely was a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, enters the room and tells the king, hey, there's a guy who's been a fixture in Babylon for decades who served your father, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, faithfully, and she emphasizes that multiple times. Excuse me. And she says that Daniel can solve puzzles. Literally, he can untie knots. The king has had his knots untied, And Daniel, the queen says, can now help him untie these other knots. But then he calls Daniel in and says to him in verse 16, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Guess what? Same words. The king with his own knots untied, hearing from the queen mother about a guy who can untie knots, then addresses the man and says in effect, I hear you can untie my knots for me. As he stands there in his soiled garments. The innuendo and double entendre wouldn't have been missed by the original readers. They would have laughed their way through the retelling of this story. Belshazzar is seen to be a fool. Daniel is using, in the words of one author, burlesque humor and he's doing so quote to underscore the sovereignty of the israelite god before whom the great kings of the earth can at a moment's notice be reduced to figures of fun before being brought to justice and now before we charge daniel with unkindness and a mean spirit, let's remember one of the purposes of this book. This entire book is to remind the followers of God that their God is sovereign, regardless of who's on the throne. And in a few chapters, we're going to get into crazy visions and dozens of kings, many of whom want to destroy the people of God. And God's people need to be reminded that through these stories that God is the only true source of security, that God will ultimately humble all of those who mock him and his followers. And he does so by telling us that Belshazzar loses control over his own bodily functions, just like the kings are going to lose control one at a time. And going to do so at the willing of God himself. So the king's feast. The story's figure of speech. Belshazzar's folly. And fourth, Babylon's fall. Daniel, as he stands before Belshazzar, recounts the history of Nebuchadnezzar in verses 17 to 21. His power, his exaltation, his insanity, and his restoration. And he's bold as he talks to Belshazzar. He pulls no punches. And he lays into the king in verse 22. 
So let's allow Daniel to finish the story in his own words. Verse 22. From the mouth of Daniel. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. You knew all of this about Nebuchadnezzar, his power, his insanity, his restoration. Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles and wives and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he, the God of heaven, sent his hand, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many tekel parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Many means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and have been found deficient. Paris or parson means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. We could spend hours on the words that appeared and the interpretation, but that would miss the forest for the trees. The Assyrian Empire and the great Babylon, remember, the pictures of self-sufficiency and self-confidence, defeated in a single night. And that defeat was in process even as, as Belshazzar partied in seeming security. The inevitable defeat of the self-sufficient and self-confident king has come down into our own culture as an idiom you all know well. The writing is on the wall. Any kingdom that mankind builds in an attempt to secure our own destiny is tenuous, unstable, and temporary. Its defeat is inevitable. The writing is on the wall. And that brings us, finally, to our foundation. We started our time talking about Belshazzar as a non-fiction figure of speech. The unstable part representing the whole. And we may laugh at Belshazzar. It's okay to. But friends, our idols are far from acceptable. God doesn't ignore our idols either. So let me ask you, what is the shelf life of the foundation you've chosen to build your life upon? This week, what became for you a kind of representative to secure your destiny? In whom or what are you finding your identity? What is beginning to define you more than your relationship of humble worship 
before the holy God? What is beginning to take the shape and place of the one true God in your life? What is that to which you are beginning to run to define your existence, to give your life meaning and purpose and security? Christian, worshiping the true God changes everything. From how we engage with our families and our coworkers and our friends, to how we think about our relationship to money and financial security, to how we cultivate humility in a world of pride and arrogance. And the downfall of idolatrous men in their kingdoms is inevitable. The handwriting is really on the wall. But those who choose to place their security in the eternal kingdom of God will never be shaken. And when we choose to embrace this secure foundation, then friends, we are freed up from the anxiety that crushes our age. And why is there so much anxiety? Because the foundations are crumbling. The foundations have a shelf life. But friends, when we embrace this secure foundation, we are freed to serve God. We are freed to love others, to bless our communities, and to demonstrate the staying power with which God empowers his people. Because guess who is still standing at the end of chapter 5? So friend, God is inviting you through his word to lay down your self-confidence and self-sufficiency in humble repentance and turn once again in faith to him. Well, let's just quote the words of Daniel, shall we? The one who holds your life breath in his hands. The one who controls the whole course of your life. So will you respond to him? But let's take it a step further. What would God write on your wall right now if it was your turn to stand before him? I'm indebted to two authors for this connection, Kim Monroe and George Schwab. If we're being honest, each one of us could have the same judgment written on our wall that was written on Belshazzar's wall. Left to our own ability to secure our destiny through idolatry and whatever internal resources we can muster and whatever external resources we can gather, the writing on the wall would be the same. Weighed and found wanting, numbered days, kingdom lost. And that legacy goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. So this seems like a good time to bring up Twinkies again. The parent company of Hostess began making plans to rescue the Twinkie from oblivion. So using mold-inhibiting technology and enzymes, they were able to extend the shelf life of the Twinkie from a mere 26 days to an astonishing 65 days. One Wall Street Journal author commented, 
Twinkies don't actually last forever, but now they last closer to forever. And we can chuckle at that. But honestly, 65 days isn't even close to forever. In the grand scheme of things, a shelf life of 65 days is a blink of an eye. Well, kind of like the rule of Belshazzar. Just like the staying power of any one person in control. Just like the expiration date on our own ingenuity or academic degrees or cleverness or charisma or financial success or purchasing power or career advancement or parenting skills or health and wellness. Friends, it all has a shelf date. It's only secure if it has no limit, and it is all limited. And Daniel wants to convince us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there is only one kingdom that will remain, only one king whom we can embrace as our representative, part for the whole, who will hold us, who will securely bring us to the only desirable destination, the very presence and person of God. And that one is Jesus. Jesus is the only human being that has ever lived that would have something different written on his wall than yours and mine. Weighed and found worthy of unnumbered days and an eternal kingdom. And Christian, through repentance and faith in him, what was properly written on his wall has now been transferred to your wall. And what was properly written on your wall has been transferred to his wall. He is weighed and found wanting on our behalf so that we might be weighed and found worthy because he is worthy. So you, so will you, Embrace as your representative the most important figure of speech in history. Will you, like Belshazzar, embrace self-confidence, finding yourself in the kingdom of Babylon that will pass away? Or will you embrace Jesus as your part for the whole representative? The greater and truer synecdoche. So that what is true of King Jesus is true of you. Because what is true of the king is true of his subjects. So church, let's delight in the words of Daniel. And let's choose to glorify the God who holds our life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of our lives by trusting King Jesus as we endure the security and joy the security, stability, and eternality of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the God of heaven. Your sovereignty is not limited to any geographic locale. And so, Father, we as your children would pray that your sovereignty and your rule would extend further and further into the most inner recesses of our hearts. May we not hold any corner away from you. 
but may we bring ourselves wholeheartedly into the light so that you would reign and rule. Father, give us grace to lay down our idols, our self-sufficiency, and our self-confidence, and to trust afresh and anew in the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the only eternal kingdom. And Father, we ask that as we do that, your Spirit would empower us to love our neighbors, to bless our community, to go into a world without fear, without anxiety, to live out our worship before you as the king whose kingdom cannot be shaken. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Thank you.